Just in time for Halloween. It's Tapeheads. I'm Sean. And I'm Lindsay. Tapeheads is the podcast where we select a VHS tape from either my collection or Lindsay's collection. We watch it and then we talk about it. We've had a busy last couple months. Oh, just a little busy. Yeah, what have we been up to? Oh, you know, hanging out with friends, going to work. Be getting married. Which is the reason I think we've sort of been slacking on these a little bit, but uh, we're very excited to be back. Um, our first episode is a married couple. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what did you pick out for us this time, Lindsay? We watched The Mummy, the Brendan Fraser classic. Was this one that you grew up with? Yeah, I saw it in theaters. We actually saw all three of them in theaters. Um, I still have never seen the third one. Regretfully. <laughs> Not even all three, just all three of the main series. And then I also saw the the Scorpion King in I theaters. I forgot that there was a spinoff. Yeah, with The Rock, and it was not good. It was kind of early in his acting career, so it was all about him being buff. I don't even remember him having dialogue. Yeah, I remember him showing up in The Mummy Returns uh, with some sort of dicey CGI. He's a villain in the second one, in The Mummy Returns, but then he comes back as a hero in the spinoff? It's a little more complicated than that. I only saw it the one time in theaters, but I just I, I remember he's not totally 100% bad. I think they try to humanize him a little bit, but I honestly don't remember it at all. So so tell me a little bit about this movie. It's, it's 1999. Brendan Fraser is sort of putting a toe in the water as being a sort of an action hero instead yeah. of more of a comedy man. Um, he was already bridging that a little bit with George of the Jungle, which was a mix of comedy and action. And I think he kind of blends those two genres pretty well. For a long time, Universal had been trying to come out with another mummy movie they uh it was sort of in development hell for a long time there was a period where they're going to make it more of a straight horror film but then the director steven summers who also directed the second one pitched it as sort of this big swashbuckling indiana jones style movie which is kind of a big departure yeah um but it's interesting how i mean not to tip our hand too much but it's interesting how well it works since it's that's not at all what the one from the 30s is yeah I can't imagine it would have been. This also has a lot of CGI. It's sometimes a little too much. It looks kind of hokey and dated. But, I mean, they can't really help it. It was the best technology they had at the time. Some of those first shots where you see Thedes and, you know, these sweeping vistas of the building the Sphinx and the pyramids, like, that is all CGI. And it doesn't look, I mean, it looks a little dicey by today's standards, but it looks all right for 1999. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's very true. You have a lot of ads on this tape, so much so that it might take us a while to get through them. The first ad is for Universal Studios Escape, which apparently is the old name for just Universal Studios Orlando. Huh. He's handing out missing flyers for what you think is a dog, but it turns out to be a dinosaur. And it's an ad for Jurassic Park, some sort of uh, attraction. I feel like if I lost my dinosaur, I would not be handing out flyers saying like can you get it back i would have alerted the authorities because people will die um i'm just gonna get through these quick because none of them are that exciting but um this is a very cynical thing that happened on a lot of tapes in the late 90s but you get an ad for the dvd collector's edition after you've already bought the vhs because maybe you want to upgrade that's true it does look like a pretty sweet dvd 
then you get an ad for the Jerry Goldsmith's Mummy soundtrack, which I received for as a birthday present. Then the fourth one's the, the Universal Classic Monsters Collection, the idea being if you're interested in this remake, you might be interested in going into the old back catalog. Yeah, except this really isn't a remake. It's just taking that idea and yeah. creating something entirely new. I mean, Emotep, I mean, that's really the only similarity is that they call this mummy Emotep, who is a real historical figure who I wrote a paper on for my African studies class. And he was actually a really cool guy in real life. I don't know why he's a villain. I guess because he's got a spooky name. Yeah, that's probably it. But yeah, they're then just plugging a lot of these old movies in their in the Universal catalog. You get the Alfred Hitchcock collection. They at this time it seemed like they're just re-releasing all their old movies on VHS. They you see clips of Vertigo and Psycho and Marnie. Then you go into your Universal thrillers, which is really just a scrambling of various movies that they have the rights to, like some child's play movies, the Wes Craven collection, things like that. And then uh, we get a direct-to-video Dragonheart sequel trailer. Which looks really bad and stars the uh, older brother from Malcolm in the Middle. I liked the original uh, Dragonheart, but I did not see this sequel. All I remember is that Sean Connery voices the dragon. In the first one. In the first one. Yeah, yeah. I don't think he came back for the second one, because I think the second one is a young dragon. By the way, it's raining outside our apartment really hard, so... That's, uh, you might be hearing some of that right now. So it's called a mummy. Obviously, there's a mummy in it. A few people who come together who normally wouldn't be hanging out, they get to this ancient city and they unleash a cursed uh, Egyptian priest who should never have been released. And then kind of all hell breaks loose and they're trying to get things back together to save the world. It's also kind of interesting the year they set it in, 1923, because Egypt was kind of under a colonial regime. And then after World War One had a revolution where they fought back. So around like 1919. And then 1923 was actually the year that they signed um, their own constitution outlining their independence and kind of like setting down their own laws as as an independent nation without colonial overlords. It's interesting to me that they picked this time, but I guess maybe they thought the turmoil in it and the styling that they could have in it, the costuming and stuff, that appealed to them. You know, Tutankhamun's tomb was found in the early 20s, and so it kind of lines up with that. There was just such an explosion of interest and in, in pillaging uh, coming out of that that this timing really makes a lot of sense. I remember as a kid always being confused about this battle at the beginning, because basically the movie begins with a flashback sort of setting up the curse of Emotep and stuff, but then we're transported right to 1923 at this uh, city, Hominoptera, the city of the dead, and we meet Brendan Fraser and his cowardly friend Benny, and I was like, what American conflict was going on in Egypt? But as it's explained in dialogue, they're part of the French Foreign Legion, and they were stationed in Libya, but I guess they went AWOL to go, basically their entire division went to Egypt to do some treasure hunting. But there's a lot of guys there. Yeah, I mean, it's not really clear. And then going through the 20s, there was still a lot of conflict with 
the English and the French fighting in Egypt and northern Africa. So I think there was just a lot going on in that period where they could plug in these action scenes that they wanted to have. Let's talk a little bit about Rachel Weisz because this is the first thing that I really saw her in. I know that she was in a movie prior to this with Keanu Reeves and Morgan Freeman called Chain Reaction, but that was sort of a bomb. This is the first time I was really aware of her. And she's really good in this. Yeah, she's very charming in this because she plays this sort of stereotypical bookish woman who kind of nerds out over her interests and she's obsessed with history and language. And so uh, instead of kind of reading about things in a library, she decides to actually go find these things herself. I mean, you see the same conflict in Indiana Jones where he's a professor and he ends up thieving and busting up things and kind of ruining these historical artifacts. And she's doing essentially the same kind of thing, which I don't know if this works better because of the historical setting, because a lot of pillaging was done and people didn't really protect artifacts. It's funny how likable her character is, even though she's always just kind of destroying things. She's the one who awakens the mummy by reading from the Book of the Dead. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting because you see this sort of I don't think the movie is actually making this particular commentary, but I think it speaks to this whole sense of quote-unquote Orientalism and these people who would be very, very interesting, especially around this time, this historical period where people were obsessed with learning all they could about the uh, Egyptians and these other parts of the Orient, but they didn't show a lot of respect for those beliefs or those things. Mm -hmm. Like the fact that she's reading aloud from the Book of the Dead in the city, that sort of thing, like it, it shows a total disregard and an ignorance despite her intelligence. It's just kind of interesting because you have Emotep who is having an affair with the Pharaoh's mistress he gets caught out by the pharaoh, so then they kill him. They being Emotep and the mistress kill the pharaoh. As punishment, he's Emotep is then killed and kind of cursed. But it's why would you put this curse on him that when he comes back, to, like if he's awoken from the dead, he'll just destroy everything. Yeah, it's a horrible punishment in the sense that they're buried alive with these horrible flesh-eating scarab beetles that will pop up again later. And they seal him, they basically bury him alive, but part of the curse is if he wakes up, he's invincible and can command armies of zombies and things and like immortal. that. So this sort of sets up the main drive of the movie that, um, you know, of course they go back to the city of the dead and they wake up Emotep and he's looking to resurrect his mistress, Anaxana Moon, the love of his life. Mm-hmm. And of course he centers in on Rachel Weiss as the target of that. Like he thinks that he can deliver her soul to her body. I think that's sort of his goal throughout the movie. Yeah, it's and it's interesting because he, to rebuild himself, because he comes out as this totally destroyed corpse, and so he's rebuilding his own body by killing off and sucking out the life energy of everybody that had broken into his tomb. Yeah, mostly with these uh, annoying American characters that (laughs) their whole character is just that they like to shoot guns. They like guns and horses. Talking like cowboys. 
And then, and then, meanwhile, you have Benny, who we mentioned earlier is sort of this cowardly friend of Brendan Fraser, who I have no idea what ethnicity this guy is supposed to be or like what cultural background he comes from because he sort of talks like he has this Peter Lorre sort of voice. Yeah, like maybe he's American and was also in the French Foreign Legion, but. It's like you pointed out when we were watching this. He's got all of these different symbols for every possible religion, and he knows all these different languages, so he can pray in each of the languages. And so Emotep hears him say something in Hebrew and knows that is the language of the slaves, so then suddenly Benny is useful to him. Mm -hmm. He he... sort of becomes like the Renfield to Emotep's Dracula. Yeah. He's the... He's the little toady that helps him out. But essentially, Benny is this guy who's just anything that he needs to be for convenience in that moment. I mean, that's why he would have every possible religious symbol and speak whatever language to get away with whatever he can. This is sort of a movie of two parts, in a way. The The first half of the movie is very much about this band of characters coming together and traveling to Hamanoptera to find... Well, I mean, they're not trying to find Emotep, but they do find him. And that first half is like sort of this fun swashbuckling adventure movie. You get to sort of know these characters. The second half pivots a little more towards horror when they go back to Cairo and Emotep is following them. And then it sort of veers... And towards the end of the second half, it it sort of veers back into adventure territory when it becomes this rescue mission to get back Rachel Weisz's character. Would you say that's fair to say? Yeah, except there's a scene toward the end where they have these weird... You called them froggies. They're they're these (laughs) weird mummy guys who don't move... In a, in a human fashion most of, half the time. And they're really creepy, but they also are sort of like something from a video game, something much more fanciful. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of one of those things where I realize I'm willing to make that leap to, to go with like the flesh-eating beetles and the mummy and all that stuff. But then when they in- inject these guys, they don't quite fit with everything else. And it, thro- it throws off the movie for me. I think part of it is the physics of them too. Because even though Arnold Vosloo's mummy character, when he's sort of like slowly regenerating, he's clearly like a CGI creature. But the way that he moves around, he, you know, he's, he's sort of like limping about because he's not fully formed. I prefer that because it has some weight to it, other than these, like, very bouncy, kind of crazy creatures that don't seem to obey our rules of physics, you know? Like, it it just seems like less of a threat. I almost would have rather they'd been something else, like, clearly more of a monster than these mummy guys, because Mm -hmm. I think that's the thing that's odd to me, is they introduced this mummy character, but he's nothing like them. I mean, I guess those were sort of the temple guards. Or oh, I guess some of his high priests were buried alive, too. Yeah, his followers, some of his followers were murdered, too. Yeah. Or, I, I shouldn't say murdered, but, you know. Sentenced to death yeah. by being buried alive, or mummified alive. Yeah, sentenced to death because of him. I mean, it was totally his fault. I think that I enjoy this movie the most when it's kind of... I think Brendan Fraser is actually really well cast. I think that he does do this swashbuckling Errol Flynn type character really well. It really was just this, and that was such a surprise because I thought this was going to set him up to do more of these films, but I don't know if people just thought, well, you can only really do that in The Mummy. Yeah, and I think he has great chemistry with Rachel Weisz. I really like the early parts of this film, 
And I'm even with it when it gets a little bit silly when it, they're traveling to Cairo and all of a sudden Emotep has all these followers out of nowhere who just chant Emotep. Yeah, because they make it seem like he can do mind control if you're an Egyptian. Although he kind of entrances Rachel Weiss's character, so he clearly has some sort of power of influence of all the the characters in the universal monsters stable he actually reminds me the most of dracula in a lot of ways because he he, is, he yeah. has this power over people he has these you know minions he has a renfield character in Denny. Yeah. and i have to say like of all those um universal monster properties like dracula frankenstein wolfman I always thought that The Mummy was the weakest, the old Boris Karloff movie, just because he just isn't that compelling of a character. So I can see why they draw from one of their more charismatic creatures like Dracula for some of the inspiration for this. That's a really good point. What I was just going to say about that is I do feel like once she gets captured and it's sort of this damsel in distress thing and we start to get more of those kind of CGI creatures, it's kind of like boss fights that Brendan yeah. Fraser has to go through. I'm a little taken out of the movie, which is too bad because that's like the climax of what's otherwise a pretty entertaining well, movie. I think, I think it's also kind of annoying because inevitably some woman has to get captured in these right that happens in so many of these films i mean it's also kind of like big trouble in little china and she's more interesting than that than uh than and she does kind of fight back but i feel like uh it's a little bit limiting for her character and i don't think it was totally necessary i think they could have taken it a slightly different track just sort of a lazy plot device. Yeah. It's like, oh, we're getting towards the end of the movie. How can we raise the stakes really quick? Oh, the woman gets captured exactly. and the guy has to save her. It's so lazy. Yeah. I I feel like a lot of movies fall victim to that just because it sort of feels like, oh, we need one last little thing. What can we do? Oh, this. I mean, but if it wasn't that, it would just be some ticking clock that they would put in. Like, yeah. oh, we have to get to him before he completes the prophecy. Yeah, I guess what there's not a ton of options for yeah. what you can do, but... Because it's a fairly simple story, all in all, and the fact that these characters... I mean, if, if it weren't for these characters being so interesting, we also haven't mentioned John Hanna as the her brother, Jonathan, who I always liked as a kid. I feel like he's... Another one of these comic relief characters like Benny that's actually like really well cast. Yeah, he's really great in his role. He's very funny. He kind of balances out her seriousness. It's kind of interesting because he just kind of plays off of Brennan Fraser's sort of swashbucklingness because he's not that much of a tough guy, but he still has that humorous edge. Uh, in fact, I really like the portion of the movie where he's hunting people down and regenerating. I think a lot of that stuff is like, the closest to horror as it gets when he's, you know, cornering these people. Like, there's that great scene when he gets scared by the cat and yeah. turns into this weird uh, dust tornado. I think for me, I'm with the movie until that latter scene mm-hmm. toward the end where they're doing their final boss fight. Yeah, even his, like, creeping into people's bedrooms and, like, taking their essence is very Dracula also. Like, in yeah. the movie, like, his character almost works the best when he's, like, this... Dracula figure. I remember finding him really creepy and scary when I was a kid. Like, that was pretty effective. 
This actor, Arnold Vosloo, usually plays a villain. He pops up in things like Blood Diamond and 24, but I think he's really well cast. Plays all of this very straight, which is good because Brendan Fraser is having so much fun with this material, as is as are Rachel Weisz and John Hanna, and obviously the actor playing Benny, that it's kind of good to have a villain that grounds it a little bit and, and make it as an actual threat during all of this. And speaking of Brendan Fraser, an interesting uh, factoid that we were reading about is that apparently he almost died in a scene. Which is crazy. It's, the, it's supposedly the scene, because this is from a Rachel Weisz interview where she talks about this, but it was the scene where he was being hung and he actually was injured during it to the extent that he had to be resuscitated. They are filming in Morocco for about, I think, 17 weeks. And apparently it, it, the, the conditions were really rough um, when they were on location. Uh, in addition to Brendan Fraser almost dying, apparently uh, they had to take out kidnapping insurance on a lot of the cast members because that was a threat. And... Uh, no one told them until after the movie was over that they had done that. If I were in that position and I had to do that film, I had already signed on to do it. Mm-hmm. Kind of wouldn't want to know that I had kidnapping yeah, insurance. Yeah, I wouldn't want to know that either. Yeah, and uh, this film came out in May of '99. Uh, that was the big summer of uh, *Phantom Menace* and a lot of other big movies. It grossed 415 million worldwide, paving the way for sequels of various quality all the sequels get gradually worse and kind of more racist somehow <laughs> like because it this isn't 100 percent kosher this movie but then they gradually the, what is it they have the pigs the pygmies in the second movie and then the third movie set in china yeah i think the only parts of this movie i know that this movie has a reputation for being racist i think that sort of comes from the character who's like the warden at the prison that Brendan Fraser was free yeah, from. Yeah, they show him as r- really... Uh, they keep saying he stinks. Like a lot of that stuff is a little uncomfortable. And they just have him when, really unsavory, yeah. yeah. And when they're mowing down uh, all of Emotep's followers who are just like these brainwashed people, like when they're just kind of like driving through crowds of them, it sort of feels like oh, life is cheap for these people. I feel like that's really uncomfortable, too. Yeah, they really don't care that they're potentially killing these innocent people who have been temporarily brainwashed. Yeah, not the most sensitive movie, but I feel like setting it sort of in this era, in a way, like allows them to get away with some of that stuff a little bit. To me, once you introduce fantasy elements, I don't think you have to be that historically accurate. But... That's also just me, maybe. I remember hearing about people who were really bad about the Great Gatsby movie not being historically accurate, which it really did not try to be. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's Boss based Lerman. On a, That's his whole thing. And it was based on a fiction book. You know, it's not like it was based on a nonfiction autobiography or something. So I think there's a little room for license, and maybe people didn't think that they had that license until more recently because i think in more recent shows you're seeing them take advantage of that much much more to where they can have more diverse cast not necessarily have like those undercurrents of um cultural attitudes and stuff because i think it's very different when you're doing something that is very consciously attempting to be historically accurate and something which like this which is definitely not 
Yeah, I mean, I think the most egregious thing, and this is something that the old mummy does too, is casting Emotep as this evil guy, when in reality, he was this brilliant engineer and mathematician and astronomer. Some people credit him with, like, inventing the written word and things like that. There's, I mean, there's not a whole lot known about him. I think that he's one of those people that has sort of been built up over the thousands yeah. of years, but he's often thought of as this hero of early medicine and early philosophy but here he's just kind of this bad guy who <laughs> is uh, an evil mummy but i think that's more because they're basing this on the original 30s boris karloff mummy which also called their mummy emotep and and i i should make a correction on something i said earlier there's i completely forgot that there's like a three-year time jump following this battle with brendan fraser so m most of the movie is actually set in 1926, but I agree it is still in the height of that Egyptology craze of the Roaring Twenties. And they had the unwrapping parties. Did you ever hear about that? No. People would get mummies, and then instead of, you know, preserving them or looking at them or anything, they would actually unwrap them, and it would be a whole celebration. Like, people would be drinking and having fun. <sighs> Oh, God. It, when you think about all the stuff that must have been destroyed because of assholes, like the ones in this movie, just kind of raiding tombs and smashing stuff, unwrapping mummies. All right, Lindsay, well, you chose this tape. Do you buy it, rent it, or tape over it? The people are dying to know. Rent it. And that's me as I am now. I think it's really fun. I think there's fun dialogue. It's like a little problematic. The ending isn't as much fun for me because I think it kind of diverts a little bit from what we were seeing in the rest of the movie. But overall, I still really enjoy this. I think it's a fun watch. When I was a kid, I probably would have said hands down buy it because I was so into this movie when I was a kid. I had a had a little bit of a crush on Brendan Fraser. I don't blame Even you. though he's kind of gross at the beginning of the movie. <laughs> well, not the beginning, beginning, but when oh, he's, I know. When he's, he's in jail. Lynch, yeah. yeah. But then he cleans up pretty nicely. Oh, uh, yeah. What about you, Sean? I'm also going to give it a rent it, and I agree. When I was the age of when this came out, I would have been more of a buy it. I think it's just a fun, accessible popcorn movie. It has its flaws. It's very much a product of its time. Um, but I think what really makes this enjoyable for me are these performances, um, which I feel like I don't, I don't really remember the sequels, um, I, and I definitely didn't see the third one or Scorpion, so I guess I really just don't remember the second one, <laughs> is what I'm saying, and I haven't seen the Tom Cruise remake, but I doubt that they are this charming with the banter, yeah. especially between Brandon Fraser and Rachel Weisz, um, and I think that that's the, really the stuff I enjoy the most, along with uh, Arnold Vosloo. Whereas some of the effects are pretty dated now, and I agree it kind of falls apart under its own weight towards the end, especially when they're battling those froggies. <laughs> We're going to release another episode later this week to coincide with the holiday season. Um, this is going to be a guest episode. We're having our past guest, Philip Laird. And one more guest. Yes, two guests. Uh, he's bringing along his sister, Liz Laird. They're going to be discussing a uh, Christmas classic that they loved in their childhood. Okay, is it a classic? Because I had never heard of it before. Um, from the Jim Henson Company, this is the 1977 TV movie, Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas.
It's the shortest movie we've ever covered on the show. It's less than an hour, but I think we'll have a lot to talk about. Hopefully. But um, if you're a fan of the Muppets, you'll definitely want to tune in for that one. I'd like to thank Will Price for use of his song Mandatory Groove. You can hear more of Will's music at soundcloud.com slash gargantulon. You can learn more about us and our other episodes at tapeheadspodcast.com. We'd love to hear your feedback. You can email us at tapeheadspodcast at gmail.com. And please rate and review on iTunes. That's it for Tapeheads. I'm Sean. And I'm Lindsay. Until next time. <laughs>